Hello, and welcome to this series on the ancestors of the book of Genesis. You can find this series and others online at onefellowshipumc.org and on the One Fellowship Church podcast. Visit us online to learn more about our congregation and the work that we do in Waco, Texas. Thank you, and enjoy. All right, my friends, I think we are here for our live Bible study, One Fellowship United Methodist Church. Welcome, welcome, welcome um, for our Wednesday evening Bible study as we continue uh, adhering to the public health guidelines concerning social distancing and sheltering in place here in Waco. We want to remember to continue praying for our friends, our family, and our neighbors in this season. My friends, uh, this evening for our Bible study, we're going to be back in the book of Genesis looking at the ancestors. If you will, please let us pray. Lord, we come before you seeking peace. We come before you seeking comfort. We come before you seeking health. We come before you seeking clarity and understanding. We ask in all these things that you bestow blessings upon us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, friends. Well, it is a pleasure to be back with you once again. I always miss being present with you um, in person because of how, uh, how valuable the conversations are when we're sitting around the table, when we're thinking about the text together. This evening, we will be continuing our study in the book of Genesis, looking at the ancestors. Uh, we looked at Abraham last week, of course, and this week we are going to look at the next generation, uh, not Isaac. We're actually going to look at Hagar and Ishmael. And you see, my friends, uh, the book of Genesis, this, this collection of stories is remarkably important. Um, we saw how last week uh, the story of Genesis, the narrative of Genesis is driven by sort of this crisis as soon as the story of Abram opens in Genesis chapter 12, uh, we already see that there's a problem with the world. We get our uh, main character here, Abram. The name means exalted father, but there's a problem. He has no children. So can Abram be an exalted father? And what happens is God shows up here in chapter 12 and issues a promise to Abraham, an intervention almost, promises to make Abram into a great nation. And this requires descendants. And this promise is what's going to drive the rest of the book of Genesis, because future generations will inherit this promise in some way. And what happens is in each of the stories, the promise is under threat. In fact, there are four threats that continually reemerge in the book of Genesis to this ancestral promise. There is the threat to the matriarchs we see multiple times, in fact, three times in the book of Genesis, in which one of the patriarchs, twice with Abram, once with uh, Isaac, uh, present their wives as their sisters. And that is a threat to the well-being of their wives. We see that there is the threat of sibling rivalry that threatens the promise. Uh, the stories of Isaac and Ishmael, uh, the stories of Jacob and Esau, the stories of Joseph and his brothers. We also see the threat of barrenness come up time and time again. The matriarchs of the family repeatedly being barren, requiring divine intervention for this promise to be fulfilled. And the fourth threat to the promise that we see throughout these stories is the threat of local uh, peoples. Recall that Abram was a nomad living in someone else's land, in the land of Canaan. That often put him at a sort of strategic disadvantage when it came to engaging the peoples around him. And so, my friends, as we, are, uh, as we, we move from Abram to 
the next generation to Ishmael and to Hagar, I want to take a moment to recognize that Abram may be one of the most uh, significant characters in the study of religion, in the historical study of religion. And one of the reasons why is three of uh, the prominent monotheistic faiths in this world trace their heritage back to Abram. We have Judaism, we have Islam, and we have Christianity. And it's important to recognize this connection that we find uh, with the stories in the book of Genesis. Because these stories give us a point of contact across these three faiths. And when we take an honest look at the historical relationship between these three faiths, it has not always been one of peace. There have been a lot of not just moments, but extended periods of violence that have marked the relationship between these faiths, especially when we think about the relationship between Western Christianity and Islam and Judaism. And when we have this, this history of pain, this history of violence, there is a need for intentional healing. And for us to intentionally bring healing into the world, when we have stories like this that give us a common ground, that give us a point of contact, in which we can reach out. This is a remarkably powerful thing. We want to remember that Jesus calls all of us to be peacemakers. After all, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. And now, I don't know about you, my friends, but I know whenever I look around the world, I always think we could use more peacemakers. These stories that give us points of contact, that uh, give us common ground with our neighbors, are remarkably powerful opportunities for us to live out a path of peace. And so, my friends, I want us to uh, look at the next generation of the ancestors in these stories. And rather than going to Isaac, I want us to look at Hagar and Ishmael today. Ishmael being the patriarch of the Muslim faith. So we recall in, uh, in Abraham's family tree, um, Abraham and Sarah are married. There's a promise to them that they're going to have a child. Um, it comes in Genesis chapter 12, comes again in Genesis uh, chapter 15, but it takes time. It, it's, de it's delayed. And so what happens is Sarah offers her handmaiden, Hagar, to Abraham to have a child for the family, an heir. And that, my friends, is where this lineage of Hagar and Ishmael come from. And even though the story of Genesis is going to follow the lineage of Isaac, Ishmael remains a very important character. And in fact, has uh, nearly, as uh, nearly the same amount of time devoted to him in the book of Genesis as we get to Isaac. And Ishmael is also going to inherit promises and blessings through this story. So, my friends, without further ado, let's dive in. Genesis chapter 16, and we're going to begin here with um, the exile of Hagar. Now, both of these stories involve some form of an exile of Hagar that we're looking at today in Genesis 16 and again in Genesis 21. But recall that in Genesis 15, once again, there's a covenant with Abraham. The covenant involves this promise that God will, uh, will um, grant Abram descendants, children. But the promise is delayed. And so here in Genesis 16, it reads in verse 1, if you'll read with me, Now Sarai, Abram's wife. Recall this is before their names are changed to Sarah and Abraham. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. 
she had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, you see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go to my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now we need to remember that in the ancient world, children were considered both a sign of divine blessing as well as a source of care or protection. You see, one of the reasons why children were viewed as such a sign of divine blessing was because children provided security for you in the ancient world, in your old age. The children of a family would take care of you. And they would provide protection. And we see this throughout the stories, this, this, uh, this motif at play throughout the Hebrew Bible. And so when we keep reading in verse 3, so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife. Now, let me pause right here and just point out how often the text is repeating who Hagar is, that she is an Egyptian and that she is a slave girl. And this is going to be very important, my friends, because in the ancient world, these are already going to be several strikes against her. In the ancient world, who's going to hear the voice of a woman? In the ancient world, many women went unheard. And not only that, but she's a slave. In the ancient world, who's going to hear the voice of a slave? Her voice often goes unheard. And now, my friends, we want to remember that we are reading this story in a Hebrew text. And we want to remember that in the Hebrew text, oftentimes the Egyptians, shall we say, are not remembered favorably. This is in part a result of the impact of, um, of the season, the period of slavery in Egypt that it left upon the storytelling in, Jew in uh, this early Jewish culture and this early literature. Egyptians oftentimes were not viewed favorably. And so we already see in the context of the world that this story creates that Hagar is in a very vulnerable position. She's an Egyptian in an ancient Hebrew story. She's a slave in the ancient world, and she's a woman in the ancient world. Who is going to hear her voice here? Let's keep reading. Verse 4. He went into Hagar. Let's take a moment to, reg to recognize Whose agency is at work here? It's Sarah and it's Abram. It's not Hagar's agency in this story. And she conceived. When she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Now let's pause and recognize in, in the ancient world, the customs we see from the ancient Near East, um, it seems to be uh, common, at least in some of uh, the literature in the ancient world, uh, for a wife to offer a servant um, to the patriarch of the family to have children for the family. Once again, children were considered not just a sign of divine blessing, they were a protection for the children. And so it's not uncommon to see this practice in the ancient world. If a wife, if a matriarch of a family could not conceive, to offer a servant of the household in order to do that for her. We see this show up again in the book of Genesis. In fact, in Genesis chapter 30, this shows up again in the story of Jacob. We keep reading, though, because now we start to see this tension, this tension emerging between Hagar and Sarai. And this tension is going to, in fact, uh, put Hagar's life at risk. <coughs> then Sarai said to Abram, 
May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she ran away from her. There's, there's an interesting part of the storytelling here. This, this, this is a, a tragic story because Hagar is in this situation by no agency of her own. This is not part of, of uh, her decision. This was something that Abram and Sarai forced upon her. And now she comes to a place where Sarai now is dealing harshly with her. And this, this language dealt harshly, though, we see this show up elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible in the context of the relationship between the Hebrew people and the Egyptians. You see that language deal harshly. You may remember it from the book of Exodus, as well as other parts in the Hebrew Bible that remember the Exodus story. This is the language that is most commonly used to describe the way the Egyptians treated the Hebrews in slavery. The same language is used to show how Sarai treated Hagar, that led Hagar to run away, to flee. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. Hagar, she, she flees out into the wilderness. And we, we want to remember that the wilderness in the Hebrew Bible oftentimes has um, a, a lot of symbolism associated with it. The wilderness is a wild place. It's an unpredictable place. It's a place where these structures of society that oftentimes protect us, that give us routines, that tell us how the world works, they are no longer at play. And when these structures of society are no longer at play in this wilderness setting, we oftentimes see a sense of, uh, I, I almost want to say, a freedom. Um, in intervention. And, and, and here's what I mean. We often see the Lord intervening in some way in the wilderness, in a way that we don't always see in, in uh, societal settings in these stories. So, for example, in, uh, in the Exodus story, all right, the uh, Israelites are brought out from Egypt, uh, the, the world's most advanced civilization, into the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness where they receive Torah. It's in the wilderness where they are shaped into a people by the Lord before entering back into the land to build a society. We also see this in the story of, um, of Elijah, for example, when Elijah uh, calls down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. And his life is threatened. Instantly, he flees out into the wilderness, and that's where he has this encounter with God. We see it in, uh, in Hosea chapter 2, a very troubling passage, to be quite honest. But the wilderness is almost a place where, um, where the people get reformed, in a sense. The wilderness has uh, this power. This is a place where they often encounter the Lord in sort of a recreation or reformation type of motif. And so here, uh, Hagar flees out into the wilderness, away from civilization, and she has this encounter with the Lord. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. And let's, um, 
Let's pause right there, this angel of the Lord character. When we often think of angels, I know in in our modern Christian understanding, we have sort of this imaginative uh, sense of what angels are. When I say imaginative, I don't mean sort of fabricated. What I mean is we have this image that we oftentimes conjure based upon the art that we've seen, the media that we've seen of what angels are like. They're like these spiritual beings that do the will of the Lord and operate in the spiritual realm, but sometimes still move into uh, sort of our physical awareness. In much of the Hebrew Bible, though, the language angel of the Lord is a little bit different. It's not so much an angel as we would think of it. You see, the Hebrew word for angel is malach. And malach, in its uh, most basic sense, just means messenger. In fact, there are several places in the Hebrew Bible when a malach, a messenger, shows up, and it's not clear if this is a human messenger or uh, some kind of a spiritual messenger. And we kind of have to read through the story to try and figure it out a little bit. And so, you see, this language of angel um, is just... A messenger, and oftentimes when we get this language of the angel of the Lord, it often reflects the very direct presence and intervention of God. That is to say, this is language that is used for when the presence of God shows up. We think about, for example, the calling of Moses in Exodus. Remember when Moses is called, the angel of the Lord speaks to Moses from this uh, this bush that is um, both on fire and yet not burning up. But as the words come to Moses, the text repeatedly tells us that the Lord is speaking to Moses. The angel of the Lord appears, but the Lord is the one actually speaking through. And so when we read angel of the Lord here, we don't necessarily want to think an angel as we may think of an angel. Think of a manifestation of divine presence, a manifestation of God's presence. God is going to intervene here in this moment. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring on the way to Shur. <clears throat> now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a moment uh, here just to point out that wells or springs oftentimes uh, show up in a lot of these stories. Uh, the, the place where um, Rebecca first enters our story in the book of Genesis is by a well. Um, Moses for example, finds a wife after an intervention by a well. Uh, Wells or springs are motifs that show up a lot in these stories. It's interesting to watch for when these these settings show up time and time again. But anyways, we're going to keep going here. The angel of the Lord says to Hagar, the slave girl of Sarai, and notice that the text reminds us who she is. She's a slave and she's a woman in the ancient world. Who is going to hear her voice? And he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And we should probably take a moment to reflect on the power of those questions. Where have you come from and where are you going? Now, she says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. There there is something that is driving her. She's fleeing from something. And perhaps if I take a moment to pause uh, for some self-reflection, a lot of times we can ask ourselves, where have we come from and where are we going? And we come to the conclusion that we are running away from something. What are we running away from? We don't always realize that's what we're doing. 
She says she's running away from her mistress. Verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. My friends, I, I want to pause this for a moment. And, and if you will allow me to interject into this story. And I feel the need to do this. Because I have heard on multiple occasions of, of a pastor or a Christian leader encouraging a woman to return to an unhealthy relationship, to return to sometimes even an abusive relationship. And, and I have heard of, of Christian leaders occasionally doing this, motivated by a commitment to, to this concept of the permanence of marriage. And I do not want to detour us into discussions of, of modern Christian or religious conceptions of marriage in this world. What I want to do is to name that this has taken place and to very firmly denounce it. And to, in not so subtle terms, remind us, my friends, that to look at whether it is this passage or any other passage and to use it to justify encouraging someone to actually stay in a place of pain, to actually stay in a situation of abuse would be uh, not only theologically irresponsible, but downright harmful to anyone who finds themselves in that situation. Christians, my friends, are called to bring peace into this world. We are called to bring healing into this world. And what that looks like is when someone shares of their voice with us that they have been or are in this painful situation. The one, we remember that biblical theme that the God we worship is a God who hears the voices that go unheard. And so we need to hear this voice. We need to believe this voice. And our actions, our guidance, our encouragement all need to be oriented towards restoring the peace and the healing, the wholeness of this individual. And that includes removing them or, or encouraging them to find distance from the situations, the circumstances, and even the individuals that harm them. I want to very explicitly say that, to use this passage or any other, to ever encourage someone to remain in an abusive relationship or to return to an abusive relationship would be theologically irresponsible and downright harmful. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. Notice this, this uh, the, the, the angel of the Lord giving uh, this promise now to Hagar. This is the same blessing that is given to Abram in Genesis 15, just one chapter earlier. You will have numerous offspring. They will not be counted. They will be multitudes. And you see, one thing that we want to recognize is that in the Hebrew Bible, the promise to Abraham, recall in chapter 17, his name is changed to Abraham, father of many peoples. This promise is fulfilled through both Ishmael and Isaac. Oftentimes when we tell the story, when we read the story in Genesis, the story follows the lineage of Isaac. But we want to remember that the promise is fulfilled through both. Abraham means father of many peoples. And so here Hagar receives the same promise, the same promise that is given to Abram just one chapter earlier. <clears throat> Verse 11, and then the angel of the Lord said to her, now you have conceived and shall bear a son. 
you shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. And we want to take a moment and, and remember how significant names are in these stories. And so we, we always want to uh, pause when we see particularly a name changed, as we talked about last week, the change of the name Abram to Abraham, or the change of the name Sarai to Sarah. We're going to get another one uh, in future weeks when we talk about Jacob and the name Israel. When we see names change, we want to recognize this. When we see names given, we want to pause and recognize the significance. And you see, when, when the angel of the Lord gives this name, you shall call him Ishmael. He gives a reason for it. For the Lord has given heed to your affliction, or the Lord has heard your affliction. You see, the name Ishmael means God hears or God gives heed. Let me pause for a second and let's remember what, what the text of Genesis repeatedly reminds us. Hagar is a woman in the ancient world. Hagar is a slave in the ancient world. And in case we forgot, she's an Egyptian. Who's going to hear her voice? Who is going to hear her voice in the ancient world? In the ancient world, the cards are stacked against her. No one's going to listen. Did anyone listen to her voice in this story? Abram? Sarai? She's the victim of their schemes, their plans. Who hears her voice? God hears her voice. And this is a key theme that we want to remember as we read throughout the Bible. Because this will repeatedly come up. That God hears the voices of the unheard. Whether it's a small group of people enslaved in Egypt, or whether it's the Israelite, the Israel, the uh, poor of Israelite society, in the book of Amos, the book of Micah, we want to remember God hears the voices that go unheard. In this case, Hagar's voice was unheard in the story, and God shows up and hears her, and now her son Ishmael is named after that. God hears. <clears throat> the text goes on to say, in verse 12, He shall be a wild donkey of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He shall live at odds with all his kin. And I, I, I want to pause on this verse because this verse probably more than... Uh, more than many others in the Ishmael stories in the Bible get emphasized today. And one of the reasons why is the predominant lens through which many of us in North American society and North American Christian society currently view Islam or have heard about Islam is a lens of conflict. We hear about it on the news. And when we hear about it on the news, it's, it's always a story of conflict or violence. And that can sometimes color the way that we view not only an entire faith, but the way that we read these stories. And so I hear this verse emphasized a lot as somehow justifying the conflict that we in North American society have been in over the last several decades with uh, many Muslim societies in the Middle East. I want to pause for a moment to recognize that we as Christians should not be in a position of trying to justify violence. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers in this world. That 
is our calling, to bring peace wherever we go. And I also want to pause to recognize that oftentimes when we don't take the time to get to know someone, it can be very easy for us to paint them with a broad brush. We see this, for example, whenever we talk about any faith as if everyone in that faith all agreed on all things. Think about how diverse Christianity is. I mean, there's so many different denominations. There's so many different interpretations. Uh, just here in, Ameri in North American society, where we, we all kind of, you, you know, where, where English is the dominant language is spoken in worship. Imagine traveling around the world where you have so many different languages used in worship. Okay, so many different cultures through which people worship God. Even if you travel throughout this nation, you go to different uh, congregations that worship in different languages, you, you see the diversity of the faith. You can see the ways in which uh, different traditions in Christianity, different worship styles, bring out different theological accents, different nuances. It's one of the things that makes the faith beautiful, is how broad we are. And, and it's because of that that, um, all, you know, almost no matter what someone says about Christianity, you could probably find people in Christianity disagreeing on that, on that item. And we want to remember that that breadth, that diversity we have in our own faith applies to everyone else's faith as well. That in Islam, there's a lot of diversity. That in Judaism, there's a lot of diversity. That, uh, that in, in Hinduism, there is so much diversity. In Buddhism, there's a lot of diversity. We want to recognize that. Whenever we get to a place where we are willing to paint an entire faith group with a broad brush, as if everyone were monolithic, chances are that is a sign that we have not taken the time to get to know someone of that faith. When I see this verse used today in North American society, I often see it used to paint a broad brush of all of Islam, as if it were destined from the very beginning of this story in Genesis to be in a state of perpetual conflict. And I have met many Muslims on my journey of studying faith, of studying religion, of studying Christianity, who have reminded me of their calling to bring peace into the world, who have reminded me to not allow small subsets or select subsets to speak for everyone. And so just like how there are many people that I've encountered in Christianity, I wouldn't want them speaking for me. We want to remember to extend the same grace and the same compassion to members of other faiths as well. This is a verse that matters for today. And how we interpret this verse matters. All right, my friends. Let's keep going. Genesis 16, I believe we are in verse 13, because this story gets even more amazing. Okay, who's going to hear Hagar in the ancient world? She's a slave, she's a woman, and she's an Egyptian in a Hebrew story. The deck is stacked against her. But in the midst of this, God hears her. And now watch what happens in verse 13. So she named the Lord. We read that correctly. She names God. The angel of the Lord shows up to provide a name to her son. We've talked about the importance of names in these stories. And now the very next verse, she turns around and gives a name to God. How many times do we see this happen in the Bible? She's a woman. She's an Egyptian. She's a slave. She's someone that no one is going to hear. And yet she is one of the few who actually provide a name for the Lord. 
So she named the Lord who spoke to her. You are El Roy. For she said, have I really seen God and remained alive? See, the name El Roy means the God who sees. This is a God who does not just hear the voices that go unheard. This is a God who sees the people who go unseen in this world and who acts on their behalf. She learns something about God. And she provides this name. This is who you are, God. You are one who sees. <laughs> and then she, much like how the angel of the Lord gave this sort of explanation, she gives this explanation as well. Have I really seen God and remained alive? You see, in, in the Bible, there, there is this tradition that we see. Um, and oftentimes we know about the tradition because we find people citing the tradition in the exceptions. You see, there, there is a tradition, there is a fear, we could say, um, of seeing God. And it comes from this tradition that no one could see God and live. The idea that uh, God is, is so holy, so other, so much more that we, than we can comprehend. So much other that we cannot see God and remain alive in, in, in this sort of mortal state. And so there's this real fear uh, that we see reflected in many of the texts that, that you can't see God and live. We see this later on in the book of Genesis. Again, Genesis 32, 30. We see this again in, in the book of Exodus. We see this show up in the book of Judges. We see it show up in many places. And yet here, the voice that would go unheard in the world, the person who would go unseen in the world, is now heard and seen by God. And she sees God. She sees something real about who this God is. Let's take a moment to reflect. If we claim to worship a God, if we claim to follow a God that hears the voices that go unheard and that sees the people that go unseen, what voices should we, as the people of God, be listening to in this world? What voices should we, as the people of God, be attentive to in this world? What people should we, as the people of God, be seeing? Food for thought. Let's continue. I believe we left off in verse 14. Therefore, the well, once again, we've got, we've got this well motif. The well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kedesh and Bered. This is a, a, an etiology story or an origin story. You see, an etiology is a story that explains the origins of something, whether it's a custom, a place, a name, an idea. We get it all throughout the book of Genesis. We get it in Genesis chapter 3, the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent. And recall at the end of the story, each of them receives a curse. And that curse explains why the world works the way that it does. Why is it that we worship a good God who is the creator and sustainer of all, and yet it is so hard to find food, to, to grow food from the earth? It's an etiology that explains it. Why is it that we worship a God who is the God of life, who is the God who gives life, and yet childbirth, not just in the ancient world, but today, is so painful and even dangerous? It's a story that explains the origins of these things. And so here it's explaining the origins of this well, of the name, Bir Lahai Roy. So, 
In verse 15, Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. <laughs> and, and let me pause here to point out. Hagar bears this son, and then Abram provides the name that the angel of the Lord told Hagar to provide. Which means Hagar must have, uh, Abram wasn't there when the angel of the Lord said, name this child Ishmael. Which means Hagar must have told Abram about this encounter. Hagar must have testified about this encounter in the wilderness. And Abram apparently took her seriously enough now after this encounter to provide that child with the very name that the angel of the Lord commanded. And I want us to remember this because next week when we talk about Isaac now, when we talk about the other brother, uh, the patriarch of Judaism, um, through which the line of, of the Jewish faith and the Christian faith traces its heritage, I want us to remember that Abram did hear Hagar's voice after this encounter. Because we're going to start seeing echoes of Hagar's voice in the next story. All right, my friends. That's Genesis 16. But that's not the only place where Hagar and Ishmael show up. They also show up in Genesis chapter 21. There is a second story of Hagar and Ishmael, and it has a lot of striking parallels because once again, Hagar is going to be exiled. Once again, Hagar is going to have to flee out into the wilderness, and once again, her life is going to be in danger. <coughs> this, uh, in, here in chapter 21, this immediately follows the birth of Isaac. So here's what happens is um, Hagar and Ishmael come back. Sarah does end up conceiving a child. Isaac is born. And once Isaac is born now, there is a question, a tension uh, in the story. Which child is the child that inherits the promise? Now, we've already talked about how both uh, the, 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 the promise to the patriarchs, um, the promise to Abraham is fulfilled through both children. We've already talked about that, but there's this question of inheritance. In the ancient world, one child inherited everything. And so in the ancient world, in this ancient context, there's now going to be this question, who is the rightful heir to Abram's estate? Is it the firstborn child, even though he was born of a woman of lower status in the family hierarchy? Or should it be Sarah's child? Even though he was second born, he was born to the matriarch of the family. And there, there's this question. Because ordinarily in the ancient world, you would go with either, uh, ordinarily the firstborn could lay claim to the inheritance or the child who um, was born to the mother of higher social standing. And so we actually find in ancient law codes, like the Code of Hammurabi, they stipulate the relationship between family matriarchs and surrogate mothers, especially when it comes to matters of inheritance. And so we find here, this is the question that's going to drive this story. When we read in Genesis 21, verse 9, it says, But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son, Isaac. And uh, <coughs> there, there, there are some, some translations here that kind of capture this, this idea of, 
of um, Ishmael playing with Isaac. It's, it's the idea of like making Isaac laugh. You know, they were brothers uh, and, and Isaac was very young. He was a baby. And so the, the older child is playing with the baby, just having fun, laughing. We all know that that sound of a child's laughter and how uh, that, that just brings hope and joy into the world around it. But here, once again, Sarah sees that and there's this jealousy. So she said to, er uh, to Abraham, cast out this woman and uses that language. She is a slave woman, lower social status in the ancient social hierarchy. Verse 11, the matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. <laughs> but God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. And this kind of reflects uh, the, the biblical story in the book of Genesis that follows the lineage of Isaac. Once again, Isaac and Ishmael, brothers, both are a part of this promise. Both grow into mighty nations. But the storytelling of the book of Genesis is going to follow Isaac. Just like how the faith tradition in Islam follows Ishmael. And here's one thing, though, that we see that's different about Abraham now. Recall the first time that... Uh, <laughs> that Hagar was exiled, was forced out, forced to flee. Um, Abram really didn't care. It's like, yeah, send her out. Now, though, there's something different. Abram's distressed. He's concerned. But God promises he's still going to care for Ishmael. Verse 13. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and she wandered about in the wilderness. And here's that, that, uh, that really significant location setting once again in the story, in the wilderness. We are away from the social structures, the social conventions. This is a place where we see God work in really powerful, formative, creating ways. Whether you're taking a, a, a group of slaves fleeing Egypt and turning them into a mighty nation, or in this case, taking one slave woman and her child and handing on a promise to her. This is in the wilderness of Beersheba. And so once again, we get this wilderness symbolism. And so we expect to see a divine intervention in some way. She's out in the wilderness again. Now, the wilderness is a place where it's not easy to survive. You don't have the, the social structures of society to protect you. When in verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. And then she went and sat down opposite of him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, do not let me look on the death of the child. She sat opposite of him. She lifted her voice and she wept. She was out of provisions. And remember, we're away from society. Where are you gonna find water? Where are you gonna find food? And she's expecting to die. And she just doesn't want to watch her child die. She doesn't want to see that. She goes, she sits a ways off so she doesn't have to watch. And she lifts her voice. Now, what have we already learned about this God in the story of Hagar? 
God is a God who hears the voices of the unheard. And once again, now we have a woman uh, in the ancient world who is of a slave uh, social status. She is an Egyptian in a Hebrew story. She's in the middle of the wilderness. No one is around to hear her. And she lifts up her voice. What do we expect? We've already seen who this God is. This is a God who hears the voices of the unheard. And sure enough, in verse 17, and God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God. Once again, we get this angel of God or angel of the Lord language called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Once again, who's going to hear her voice in the ancient world? God hears her voice. Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy, hold him fast to your hands, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. There we go, that, that well imagery, once again, the spring imagery. It's going to show up over and over again in the book of Genesis. She went and filled the skin with water and gave it to the boy to drink. Verse, seven, uh, verse 20. God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness, became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother uh, got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. And so we find this story once again showing the trajectory of Ishmael to, to uh, receive a promise from God, to receive the fulfillment of that promise, even though the story of the book of Genesis is going to follow the lineage of Isaac, and we're going to turn to Isaac next week. Even though the, sto uh, the story of Genesis follows the lineage of Isaac, uh, Genesis 21 sort of sets us up narratively to see that God's promise to Ishmael will come true as well, even though the stories don't follow that trajectory within the book of Genesis. Now, Ishmael goes on to become the patriarch of Islam. And so uh, when you study in, um, in sort of the Islamic traditions, there are uh, far more stories about Ishmael. There's a lot of parallels between um, the stories in the book of Genesis and those stories in Islamic tradition. That's one of the reasons why these stories can be so significant for us in our modern world, because it gives us a point of contact it gives us a common ground through which we can reach out, uh, reach out with hands of peace in order to start to heal some of the brokenness that we have inherited in this world, particularly between Christianity and North America and, uh, and worldwide Islam, really. My friends, I hope that you have found this lesson uh, to be valuable. I hope that you have found this lesson to be powerful. Hagar and Ishmael are remarkably powerful um, remarkably powerful uh, characters in the book of Genesis. And there is a, a lot of wisdom to be gleaned from these stories. Every time I come back to them, uh, I find um, a, a renewed sense of um, not only encouragement, but depth that these stories offer. And that's why we can come back and read them over and over again, and they can speak to us anew. My friends, I hope that you have found this valuable. I know I most certainly have. Uh, please do stay safe. Keep well out there. Um, this is a time when the church needs to be the church, even as we are socially distancing ourselves, even as we are seeking to protect one another from this virus. Call one another. Call those who, uh, who 
can't get out. Call members of our congregations you haven't seen for a while. Remind them that you're thinking about them, that you care for them. See if there's anything, um, anything that we can do to support one another in this time as we seek to remain safe in this hour. And my friends, I hope that you will take this word with you and that uh, in the words of Jesus that you will go forth and be peacemakers in this world. Amen? Amen. Thank you all very much. Blessings upon you.